right, all right, all right. So if you are like a mom and you want to go to Mom's Day Out, but it's just like, oh, my kids are crazy, I'm too busy to actually even go sign up, you scan this with your smartphone, a little QR code right there, you can sign up right off your sermon notes this morning. It's awesome. So don't forget, uh, in October and November, our great experiment is going to take place where we're actually doing child care at the 815 service. So if you have kids, you want to go to 815 and get out of bed early, like a real American. <laughs> Election's coming. Anyway, uh, just, weird thing. Last, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I mentioned it last service, and I have no idea why. But So last night, I'm getting ready to go to, go to sleep, and, and I grabbed some chips off the top of the fridge, and I ate them. You know what you should never do before you go to bed? Eat chips, right? I go brush my teeth before I go to bed, and you know what? It, the, it doesn't get them out. They're just stuck in there. So you wake up this morning with some extra food. It's not good. It's not good. Yeah, later. All right, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called Version. You click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get all the sermon notes and all that stuff that goes along with this morning. So why don't you stand on me reading to God's Word? So Psalm 119, verse 105, and it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we'd be a people who understand how your word has illuminated our way, that we'd be a people who understand the grace and the goodness that you have shown to us all throughout history, culminating in what you've done in your son, and that we, in turn, be people who live lives that are part of your story that you have been telling since the very beginning. Amen. Have a seat. This is Genesis. This is week 33. Uh, before we get into our section, I'm going to take a long trek around to get there. Uh, if you've been in church at all in your life, you've probably heard the story of how Abraham gets his promised son. That's where we're getting to today. Uh, but we've heard it a lot of times so much in church that I want to take a whole different tact to get there. Because I think that when you look at the scriptures, you understand that God begins to fulfill all that he says. And that element, we talk about this a lot, and we almost seem to overlook the very simple yet extraordinary thought that God actually does speak. So you got to hear me on what we're talking about this morning. This is going to be a two-part message. I'm going to do my best not to leave you hanging right in the middle, but it's actually going to happen. So right in the middle, you're going to be like, <gasps> and then I'm going to end it right there. We're going to go on next week. If you're new, this is not a little attempt to get you to come back next week, although that wouldn't be a bad idea. It is simply the best way to break up this idea of Abraham and his son, how it fits in the story that God's been telling throughout history. Now, a while ago, uh, my wife got a cold. This is a very rare occasion for her, but it's a very common occurrence for me. I get sick all the time. Uh, she couldn't talk, and I know some of you are thinking, oh, your wife couldn't talk. That would be awesome. You get the last word on everything. It's like whatever claim you make, she can't contradict it. Whatever issue comes up, you're guaranteed to have the last word. All she can do is smile and nod and look angry because that's kind of what happens when I do something that's really dumb and she can't talk. Get the, get the look, you know. But, but you know, I really thought in this, you know, it'd be unbearable if she were to lose her voice forever. Because I know her voice better than any other voice. To never hear her voice again, to never again hear her laugh or talk or encourage or express love or even disagree and argue and then make up again, that would be totally unthinkable. Now, for one day, you know, it's bearable. You know, she's not here this morning, so I might say enjoyable. <laughs> not. Okay, whatever. You know. <laughs> she won't watch the podcast. Anyway, uh, but, but for life forever, no, not at all. Because where there's words, you know, where there's love, there's relationship, there are words that take place in this. And this is the idea that God has spoken to you and I through the scriptures. 
You can look back at Abraham, what we've been going through. And Abraham, God speaks to him and promises him this boy that would come. And this boy eventually leads to God's son, Jesus. One of the reasons why Israel loved the scriptures, the Torah, so much in this is that they loved the thought that God actually spoke to his people. This is one of the reasons we we love this book, the scriptures. We love it. The Reformers used to call this sola scriptura, which meant that the Bible alone, the word of God, is the highest authority. Now, it's not the only authority. It's not solo scripture. It's sola, meaning it's the highest authority. You know, Martin Luther, uh, years and years ago, when he was translating the Bible into the common tongue of the German people, uh, he's, he thought that if we were to trans, you know, translate all the scriptures, and he thought it was a good thing, into the tongue of the common people, they would eventually get so used to it that it would become commonplace, and they'd stop reading it, and it wouldn't hold the same place that it that it did before they didn't actually have a copy of their own. And you know what? It actually happened. I mean, for you and I today, we have a copy of the scriptures we can read every day, but how many of us crack it open other than a Sunday morning when I make you open it? And this is the idea that scriptures are something we're supposed to love, that element we love, the scriptures. The Bible itself says all authority is not actually in it, but it's actually in God, but God spoke these words, so we believe it has authority. Now, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when we talk about the authority of the Bible, it's really shorthand for talking about the authority of God. And of course, it makes sense. If there's a God, all authority would belong to him, which means the scriptures, in a sense, have this authority. It's not picking and choosing little things we want. It's taking it as a whole. Now, the authority of the Old Testament is recognized by the people of Israel and Jesus. Uh, Matthew 5:17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not getting away with them. He's actually fulfilling all that was written. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible carries this idea of authority because it has been uniquely inspired and breathed out by God. But there's a problem in our day when people hear the word Bible. It's not the kind of picture that you get in your head when people think of authority. They have all kinds of different thoughts that swirl around the scriptures. So it's important to understand not just what the Bible is, but what the Bible is not. So when you get to the story of Abraham, you get it. See, the Bible is not primarily a book of commands to do. The Bible is not primarily a book of doctrines to believe. The Bible is not an owner's manual. I mean, anybody have a car? All right, you got an owner's manual in your car. Anybody read your owner's manual in your car? All right? If you do, you don't read it recreationally. It's like, oh, I got an extra 10 minutes. Oh, I'm going to go read that excellent book, Ford Owner's Manual. You know, you, you, we don't do that. You know, what do we do with an owner's manual? You look at it when you try to figure out how to fix what's broken. It comes in handy when you can't find your spare tire or, or how to make your spare tire work or get it out of that little hole they stick it in. You know, it, it lets you know if your spare tire is a little tiny one that you can't go over 45 miles with or a decent-sized spare tire. It lets you know how much weight your car can hold, how much uh, fuel you can put in your gas tank so you know how far you can actually go. You know, you, what, what do all the knobs do? I didn't get the luxury package, so I got a blank knob right there. What would that one have been? And you open it up and look, oh, that's what it would do. That gives me air conditioning. I need some of that. You know, it help, helps you know all the stuff that goes on in your car. See, the kind of mo- moment an owner's manual comes in handy is when you're trying to figure something out when something's broken. And a lot of people think the Bible is supposed to operate like an owner's manual. Oh, what should I do when I have doubts? Oh, that's page 32. Oh, what do I, what's the right belief about end times? Oh, that's page 64. Well, how do I fix my kids? Oh, that's page 75 through 950. And if you ever look, the Bible is not arranged like that. It's not something crazy like Dianetics. Now, yes, the Bible has commands. Yes, it has materials involved for doctrine. But it's not mostly that. What the scriptures are is essentially it's a story. It's a narrative. And it has this arc to it. 
And part of what the doctrine of inspiration involves is a belief that the Bible primarily is a story because God chose it to be a story. And there are good reasons for this. It's not that all of God's people are just, you know, ADD, we have no attention span, so we like stories better or something like that. It's that God is a storyteller, and God loves to tell a story. This is why movies or good books or good TV shows, we love watching them. That's why reality TV is from the pit of hell, because there's no story behind it, right? It's good stories. We want good stories. And so we need to understand how a story actually carries authority. And if you don't understand this, you will never understand the Bible. You'll take little bits and pieces out of context and never get it, and it will totally frustrate you. Now, the simplest way I can think of to illustrate a story is back in World War II. In World War II, there's a lot of beliefs that circle around World War II, whether you're Japan or Germany or the Allies, whatever that is, who's right, who's wrong, what's good, what's freedom, what's the right strategy. But if you went to London, uh, 10 Downing Street, you'd run into a guy named Winston Churchill. Loved his bow ties, loved chomping on cigars. Real interesting guy. If you ever get a chance, you should read a biography about him. Now, how does Winston Churchill inspire his nation during World War II? He tells a story. This is what he says. These are his words. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. If we can stand, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. I mean, nice way of saying these things. He says, but if we fail, then the whole world and all that we have known and cared for will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. Let us therefore so bear ourselves that the British Empire, thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. See, it's inspiring. He starts to tell a a story. And people said, I will give my life to that. And what mattered was not the artistry of the words, it was the reality of the story. Now, there's commands and beliefs and regulations that are all part of that story, but it only makes sense what he says in regards to if you grasp the greater story. And what we have to understand is all of history is part of God's great story. You know, from World War II all the way back to Abraham having his son. I mean, you look at Abraham, and he's got to wait 25 years to get his promised boy. Well, why? Israel goes in, and they're, they're captives in Egypt for 400 years. Well, why? The meaning always depends on the broader context for significance, and this is always true. And what our world says today is statements like, well, there's no great story. Everything's just random. It's all just an accident. There's no meaning to everything, anything at all. And the Bible says there is a story. And your story and my story will only have weight and meaning and significance when we understand how they are part of God's story he's been telling. And if we miss this story, we miss everything, and our lives seem to be meaningless. Now, N.T. Wright, he once wrote about this, that the Bible is kind of like a play. It, it has acts to it. It's got a trajectory. And if you, you have to know what act you're in to understand kind of what's going on in the story. Now, he talks about act one is creation. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is why stuff is here, and this is why stuff is good, because God made it good. So there's oceans, and there's trees, and there's mountains, and there's cliffs, and there's sunshine, and God made it, and it's good because he made it. God made all of creation. God loves all the creation. God especially loves the central coast of California because it's awesome, especially when the sun comes out. You know, it's, it's, a great, it's a great place to be, but he loves all of creation because God made it all good. Now, the second act he talked about is what's called the fall, where human sin comes in and we start to mar all of creation. There's oppression and there's violence and injustice into the world. Marriage gets messed up. Adam and Eve begin to fight. You get to Genesis 4. A guy named Lemek shows up, and he's a murderer and the first polygamist. Uh, Oppression enters the institution of marriage and family. Cain and Abel are these brothers. One kills the other. This awful murder takes place. What Act 2 tells you is that things on earth are not the way they were supposed to be. Now, other rival stories will come along today and say, well, no, it all just happened. It's all just an accident. There is no way it's supposed to be. It's just what it is. 
But the story of the biblical writers is that there is a way it's supposed to be, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's a reason that everything's all out of whack. And that reason is not primarily ignorance. It's not primarily lack of progress. Therefore, it's not going to be fixed by education, and it's not going to be fixed by technology, and it's not going to be fixed by a bigger government. Everything's out of whack because of sin, because of what has happened to our human hearts. And so at the end of Act 2, it's like, was God going to give up on this whole thing? Well, what's he going to do? Is he going to junk it? Well, no. And this takes you to Act 3. And he says, Act 3 begins with Abraham and to this promise to this people who become the nation of Israel, that God has not given up on all of this. So he takes Abram and he says, I'm going to call you Abraham. You'll be the father of many nations. And the idea is not that God loves Abraham or Israel more than anybody else. It's that he's going to use Abraham and Israel, not because there's anything special about them, but because God simply chose to use them. He says, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed, Abraham, through you. So he promises Abraham this son. In Genesis 21, he gets this promised son that eventually leads to Jesus. So open your Bibles to Genesis 21, if you have one. We're only going to cover seven verses this morning and then move on with this whole idea of the story. Because this is a story about the son. And I say, this is because next week you'll get the other half of the other son. But we'll talk about this. Some of you are sons. Some of you will have sons. But this is where we go. Genesis 21.1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now, again, this is important that God speaks. You'll see this all throughout this text, Genesis 21, that God continues to speak. As he had said. In the English language, it is so inadequate for what's actually in the scriptures. The word visited here, it means to pay attention to. It means to attend to. A lot of translations will make this word the word grace because it is used as the word grace. It means that the the boy didn't get made by Abraham's prowess at 99 years old in the sack because no man at 99 years old, no matter how many Viagra he's popping, is going to get much done in the sack at 99 years old. Right? This gets done by God's grace. This word grace is repeated three times in Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah. The Lord showed grace to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. There's the words are again, what God was doing. Do you see this is God's story? He keeps the promises. This is meant to encourage you and I as we read the scriptures that sometimes it may take a whole lot of time, but God is always true for the words that he has spoken. We trust him. It builds our confidence in God. God is good for things when he actually says these things. The promises to us today is he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. God redeems our entire lives. Verse 2, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Again, God speaks. A year before this, God promises them a boy within a year in his old age through Sarah and no one else to fulfill this covenant. At the very time God has promised, God delivers as, when, and how he promises. Now, last week and a few weeks before that, we looked at how God says, I'm going to bring you this blessing to this world. It's going to be through your offspring. It's almost thwarted twice when Abraham tries to give his wife away. God brings the wife back, humiliates Abraham, sets everything in order. So now he's a humble guy. Now he brings the baby. He is 100. She is 90. She was barren. Abraham and Sarah have doubts. They try to take things in their own hands to fix the mess. But God still comes through because it is his words that he has spoken. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Who said the name of the kid Isaac? 
God, you're in church, okay? You got Jesus or God, 50% of the time you're going to be right, all right? God, there you go. God's in the name, the kid, Isaac. And so what he does, he names his son Isaac. It means laughter, and he raises this kid in the Lord, and he's going to love this boy. Abraham sees the promise fulfilled, and he's going to do everything God says. And this is where you see two parts of this covenant. The first one is that God does his work. God calls. God is the one who brings about the terms of the covenant. It's all about him. He always does this even to this day. But you and I on the other side of this, we have this thing that we actually should do. We should respond to what God has done. We respond by believing and by following him. And we live a life that that brings God glory and praises to his name, reflects who he is. That element, this is why we do the majority of what we do after the message. You get the majority of songs, communion, prayer, giving, fellowship. It's all after the message because it's response to what God's words are doing in us. But it's not just about what we do here. It's what we do with our entire lives, how we live outside these walls. It's all about worship. That is God's love that's been poured out to us so we live lives differently. If this is the only place you worship God is inside this room, don't come, all right? Because, I mean, I either want people who don't believe at all but not people who just do that. All right, because live outside of these walls, this grace and love that God has bestowed on you so people understand it and they get it and they begin to understand God and his words have been spoken over creation. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. All right, verse four, I'll keep going. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Again, there's God speaking again. Before you get all religious and crazy and go, my son's not circumcised. I'm going to take him out to the woodshed when I get home and circumcise him. Don't. Do that. Don't do that. We're in what's called the new covenant. You don't need to do that. If you want to circumcise your son, do it in the hospital when they're really young so they don't remember it. Very traumatic, I'm assuming, if you're older. Okay. So Abraham shows up with the flint and knife to his kid, takes care of business. And I talked about a few weeks ago, this was to resemble circumcision of our hearts, the cutting away of flesh so we can hear and love Jesus and understand what he's saying to us. Now, one commentator says that God is marking his people kind of like a gang tattoo. I, I don't know if I actually agree with that. Because I think today a lot of men have babies, but they don't raise them. They aren't fathers. They're just sperm donors. And I think that's wrong, and I think it's a sin. What Abraham is saying is, I belong to God, and so does my son. We are going to follow you, and I will raise him to love you. This is a pledge before God for his son. This means if you have kids, you model that love of God to them. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And I love that. I mean, you want to talk about late in the game. There it is. Three seconds left, 100 to zero, and God still wins. It's amazing. You know, Abraham's changed his own diapers, changing his kid's diaper. He's, he's mashing his own food. He's mashing his kid's food. His son takes a nap. like, thank God the kid's taking a nap, and he's taking a nap all the time. He's 100. But he's spry. Then Sarah speaks. Verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Again, Isaac's name means laughter. God has made laughter for me. Now, the first time she laughs, she laughs at God. She kind of mocks him that God made this promise. Because seriously, what woman, if they get pregnant, a woman over 80, ever thinks they're going to carry a baby to term? And if they do that, it's actually going to be healthy at all. You know, seriously. And now she laughs with pure joy because she laughs because of what God has done. So she laughs. The laughter came from God and she laughs with God because of the words that God had spoken to her. And every time they call his name laughter, they remember that God spoke words over them. She says, everyone who hears will laugh over me. Of course they will laugh over you. You're 90 years old and you have a baby. Ladies, imagine you're 90 years old. You would laugh and then you'd weep bitterly because you... (laughs) You'd be at a store, they say, oh, wow, is that your great-great-grandson? No, that's mine. Well, that's different. You know, it's, it's crazy. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? So who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who would have said that? 
God. See, good. One or the other. You're God. You're there. That's, that's good. God says this. You, you see a lot of 90-year-old women with a nurse not nursing, so it's amazing. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is why the story is about God and his story and his words. It's about him and what he's going to do with his son, Jesus. From uh, Isaac comes this kid named Jacob, has 12 sons. These 12 sons eventually lead to the 12 tribes of Israel. And God says, calls him and says, I will be your God. He gives them a law that structures their worship because the world doesn't know God. And he gives them an identity and gives them a way of life. And you have to understand that all through this, God is expressing himself and his heart. The Old Testament law was written in what's called paradigmatic. What that means is technical terms that means it offered examples and paradigms of an obedient heart. This is why Genesis, when we read through it, can still have things for us today because it's a paradigm of certain things that are going on. Now, let me just show you this to you. Uh, I'm going to give you something out of the law. This is, this is out of Deuteronomy, and I'll just read it to you and then explain this to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.20 says, When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. You're like, what does that mean? That's out of left field. Okay, you beat your olive trees, and it sounds, I don't know, vaguely mean or something. I, I, I don't know. Does God want his farmers lazy or sloppy? No. Okay, the answer, no. God wants you to work hard and well, okay? He doesn't want his farmers lazy or sloppy. So I just go over the tree once and then forget about it. What's this? This is an issue of the heart. It's a heart for people in need. The verse goes on and it says, It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The reason you're a sloppy farmer is leave some olives for the poor. Pickers would go over the trees. Some olives wouldn't be ripe. He says, don't go back again. Leave them there. You know, so maybe somebody comes by who doesn't have a whole lot, the poor, and needs some resources to be fed. They can come and get some. Now, it wasn't a handout. They had to work for it. But you leave them there so they can come and actually get some. Some food. And so the idea is, you know, if you had, well, what if you had fig trees and, or date trees or apple trees and not olive trees? Well, you couldn't say, well, you know, the Bible only says olive trees, but I have a fig tree, so that doesn't apply to me. I mean, people do this all the day with, today with the scriptures. They say certain things, well, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say don't drive 100 miles an hour on the freeway. Well, the Bible doesn't say strip club, so it must be okay, you know, and, and we have all these crazy things with the scriptures. Judges and rabbis in Israel would look at the principle involved and they would say, no, it means you leave some food on the tree for the poor. They would say, this applies to fig trees and date trees and apple trees and olive trees. It's a paradigm. It's an example. Because the point was that the law was not just about narrow, legalistic, mechanical rule-keeping. It was about issues of the heart. And this is why when you look at the book of Genesis, it can relate to us today. It is about God revealing himself and pointing to his son, Jesus. In, in two weeks, you will see God comes to Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. It is the same wording where Jesus is getting baptized and God says, This is my son, whom I love. It's these same words coming together so we understand that it is all about Jesus. Because Act 4 is Jesus. Jesus. And this is very striking when Jesus begins his public ministry. He shows up and he says, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. What does that mean? It means everything that God has been doing in Act 1 and Act 2 and Act 3 and all of these things has all been leading to and reaches its culmination, its climaxing. Jesus says, in me. All of it has been about me. The time is fulfilled. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It is all about Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus is walking with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. After the resurrection, again, they don't recognize Jesus. He starts talking to them, and this is what he says in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses... Torah, Genesis, and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, the word all is very important. You know what it actually means in the Greek? All. All. It means all. 
So the idea is not that Jesus, you know, talked about a few messianic prophecies or these, these prophetic predictions. It's much bigger and way bigger than that. What Jesus says is now you understand the whole story. Now you understand in a way that no one ever did before what it all means, what God has been up to by speaking these words over us. Now, anybody ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis? Okay, good. A lot of you have seen it. This, this is good, so I don't spoil it for you. It's about this kid who sees dead people. There's a huge twist at the end of the movie. It changes everything when it happens. And if you haven't seen it, I really don't want to spoil it for you, but Bruce Willis is one of the dead people, so I just ruined it for you. Okay, so at the end of the movie, if you've seen this, he remembers this wedding ring, and it's his old wedding ring, and it falls out of his wife's hand, and that's when he realizes, oh, my gosh, I'm one of these dead people. And when that happens, everybody in the movie theater is like, What? We're like, what? Ow! We can't go. And all of a sudden, in your mind, you go back to the whole story a second time, only in this time in light of the dead guy. I mean, it's actually a brilliant piece of movie making, and part of what it did is tons of people had to go see the movie again, which again makes it brilliant movie making because people pay twice to go see it. And, and you've got to think, does it really make sense in light of Bruce Willis being dead the entire time? And this is what Jesus does. I think M. Night Shyamalan is just stealing God's story. Because this is what Jesus is saying, everything, all the way from the beginning of creation to Abraham to Jesus, all the way to this day, it's all about Jesus. The whole story, creation, fall, Israel, now makes sense. It's all been leading to Jesus. And early believers, they were like, wow, that's amazing. And they would go back to the whole story a second time and read it in light of the dead guy who was resurrected. And it would all begin to make sense. And you see this all over the place in the New Testament when you see phrases like, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. It's not just saying there's some isolated little place with some magic prediction and God fulfills it. He says that this whole story, this whole time is about Jesus. And now you get to know this glorious thing that God is doing about his creation, in his creation, that was marred and twisted and tarnished by the fall. And it's way more than just about this one little country or this one little culture. It's about all of this being saved from Act 2. It's about all of this being saved. And that's where I'm going to stop today. It's like right in the middle. It's like, what? Oh! I know. I'm building. I'm building. But you understand, you know, to get, we, we still have Act 5 to get to. We've got Abraham's other son, and we'll get to all of that. But Act 4 is the culmination, and you really get the point today. I mean, that's why we're starting right there, because you, you get the point. The reality is it's not about Abraham's sons, either one of them. It's about God's son who redeemed all of creation and mankind as well. And I think that if you would sit here today and you could simply understand what God has done to bring you to this place on this day with these people to worship him and understand the words that he's saying today you would stand in disbelief that God could ever be this smart or this gracious because our God has spoken great words over us throughout all the scriptures. This is God's word speaking to us. And before you leave here today, I hope you would bow your heart to his great goodness and providence because your story is not about you. It is about him. And if you ever hope for your life to make sense and it's out of control, you don't get it, then your life must be connected to him because that is when your life begins to make sense. And this is why we invite you to communion every single week. Because communion is about Christ coming and redeeming his people and making us part of this whole story. This is why you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice and remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we as this people can actually live and worship and follow him and be part of this story. He is calling all of us home. The band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, we invite you, if you need prayer for anything, maybe you've been living your life and it makes no sense and it's just crazy and, and out of control, that you would go and pray with them and they would help you to understand and put your light in context of God's story that he has been telling the whole time. 
there's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. We give because God gives so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And then there's some food back there. And, and again, we, we put the food there so you guys can get to know each other, hang out, talk to each other. Because the idea of that is, is that we are doing this all together. It's God's story, but we're walking this thing together. So we encourage you guys to do that together, to begin to walk together with other people. I'll tell you, our God is good, and his story is amazing. And sometimes I just wonder why in the world he includes us in the midst of it, because we are so crazy half the time. But he is so, so good. And I encourage you, again, if your life doesn't make sense today, that you would understand that it will only make sense in light of the story he's been telling. Because that is salvation, and that is truth, and that is life. That our God made us part of this story and called us home. And there's, like I said, deacons and elders in the back if you want to talk about that with them. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people thank you for not being a God that just set everything into motion and stepped away, but a God who has been intimately involved in his creation from the very beginning. And that you had a trajectory and an arc to all that was happening. And Father, we mostly thank you for the life of your son, Jesus, who died and rose to save your people and I ask that we'd be those who understand that it's not that it's not us who set you on a throne but you are already there and we just acknowledge these things that blessing and power and glory and honor forever is yours and it has never been anybody's but yours and so today teach us to to live our lives to walk out of these four walls as a people who understand our lives in light of your story and what you have been doing. And that we, in turn, will begin to love the world around us in such a way that they would understand your story better because of how your children actually live their lives. And that you would be lifted up and you would be honored. And all that we are would be understood in all that you are. Father, we thank you for saving us. And we thank you that you are a God who loves to tell a great story. Thank you for making us a part of it. Amen.